2: It's Friday, January 9th, 2015, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at motherjones.com inquiringminds, on Twitter at Inquiring Show, and on Facebook at slash inquiringmindspodcast. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. Joining me once again as guest host is Kishore Hari. He's the director of the Bay Area Science Festival and a herder of nerds in the Bay Area and elsewhere. You can find him on Twitter as at ScienceKish. Now, we've had Kishore on a few times at the beginning of the show to talk about science in the news with me. But this week, we actually handed him the mic and he did the main interview. So, Kishore, welcome back to Inquiring Minds.
1: It's great to be here.
2: So, who did you have?
1: So, you do it? I do it. We all do it. We empathize with those who lack it. We're jealous of those who get it in excess. I'm, of course, talking about sleep. (laughs) So this week, I got to interview Matt Walker from UC Berkeley. He leads a team of researchers at UC Berkeley's Sleep and Neuroimaging Laboratory. And he's one of the former uh, sleep researchers in the Bay Area, and they study the role of sleep in human brain function, especially the impact of sleep, and lack thereof, on learning, memory, and emotional regulation. Now, I didn't sleep that well the night before, which is probably not the best idea when you're interviewing a sleep researcher, so we quickly began to discuss how much sleep we need each night before we start to see biological consequences.
3: So if you were to, in fact, roll back the clock a hundred years, Americans were sleeping closer to nine and a quarter hours each night. Currently, based on our estimates of science, looking at what happens when you start to short sleep people, you bring them down to now seven hours of sleep or six hours of sleep or five hours of sleep, you can see at what point the elastic band of sleep deprivation stops stretching and snaps in terms of its biological consequence. And so you can essentially look at sort of like a dose response curve of sleep deprivation and say, how much do you really need to prevent all of these impairments that happen when you stop sleeping sufficiently? And it seems to be around about eight hours is the sweet spot so that you don't suffer any of these consequences. As soon as you get less than seven hours of sleep, it's very easy for us to measure impairments in your brain function and in your body functions. So Indre.
1: Do you get eight hours of sleep
2: each night? (laughs) Not even close. I remember those days before I had a baby, uh, before I even got pregnant, actually. Even pregnancy affected my sleep quality. At least that was my um, impression. I felt like I wasn't sleeping as much. And yeah, I don't remember the last time I had eight hours of sleep. Um, But hopefully again someday.
1: I don't think I've had eight hours of sleep regularly since before college. And so I was really struck when he was talking about how uh, how even at six hours when you habituate to it, we can see these long, drawn-out consequences on your biology. And these were not like, we can notice how you'll be a little bit more tired and, and whatnot. He's talking about increased risk for for major health diseases uh, over the long period of time, decreased uh, cognitive function uh, across uh, multiple months. I, and I was like, six hours? I, I think the thing that really struck with me that... It, is when he cited the number just a 100 years ago. uh, um, uh, Typical humans were sleeping nine and a quarter hours. I can't even imagine sleeping nine and a quarter hours. That sounds like such a luxury for a parent right now.
2: Uh, For anyone, really, anyone who has a job, that's a luxury. um, But yeah, I mean, I I think that sleep is becoming... It, we're starting to realize just how important it is. In fact, it, it's as important, if not more important, than exercise, which everybody knows is part of a healthy lifestyle. So, you know, I think this is a, a, a very timely interview, especially um not only now when you know the nights are long, so the sleeping times are are good. Um, but also it's New Year's resolution time and people want to get healthier. So hopefully they will heed what he has to say. So that'll be our main interview for this week. Um, but first let 's talk a little bit about some science in the news. Um, a couple things caught our eye uh, one uh, sure, you brought to my attention the fact that the British Medical Journal every December publishes a spoof issue, so that is the articles in the journal are not you know they 're not strictly um science except well they kind of are
1: they 're not false. They are just um, articles that are sort of ridiculous. It's meant to be a joke. They've been doing this for a number of years. And a friend of mine um, wrote an article for The Atlantic highlighting uh, a recent paper that came out showing how often these joke papers are actually being cited by real publications.
2: Like, they don't
1: get the joke.
2: I know. So let's back up for a minute. So, you know, the papers that would be something like... um, you know what, what? What were some of the recent ones? My that favorite
1: one is that um, men die younger than women just because they're a little bit more stupid, just <laughs> so, a little bit, not like egregiously so, just a little bit more
2: stupid. so. And and they're based on real data collection, you know. Except of course they're perhaps perhaps the method of collecting data. is I think not the quite conclusion is incorrect, and, let's just say. and certainly their interpretations are a bit far fetched. Um, but for example, there was another paper that was published about the role of prayer, uh, far off prayer, that often get cited as an example of the fact that, you know, people believe that prayer is really helpful in in changing aspects of your biology if you're sick. So for example, these are people who had a bloodstream infection, so something pretty specifically biological. And uh, they were prayed for from people who were many, many miles away. And people often cite the data that show that those people that were prayed for did get better, um, as evidence that prayer works. But the the interesting thing was, is that some of these people were prayed for, for 10 years after they had the illness, and some of them were already dead.
1: Now, the... to be fair, these papers tend not to make it far. They get published, which is a problem in and of itself. But oftentimes, they're sort of viewed internally in the science community as sort of a litmus marker. Oh, you're citing this kind of joke paper. But I think the the part that really struck me is not how ridiculous some of the assertions are, now, like, how could anyone cite this? It's how many times they get cited. There was a study... Uh, that reference the energy expenditure of teenagers playing video games as a joke. And it's been cited 400 times, according to an estimate from uh, Google Scholar, which just seems like an extraordinary amount. I don't think I've had a paper that's been cited <laughs> 400 times. Uh, how uh, these get a little bit out of hand. And so um, I think there's some question marks within the um, within the community now, like, should this be happening. Not so much should the British Journal be putting this out, as how can we kind of stop them from sort of archiving this? So people actually reference the these papers.
2: Well, I think the bigger question is, you know, it shouldn't be enough to just use sort of an argument from authority, right? Oh, well, it was published in the British Medical Journal, therefore, it must be true. I think that's what we really need to start questioning, is that yes, yeah, sometimes the British Medical Journal actually publishes farcical papers. So just because it was published there, it doesn't mean that it's the truth as we want it to be. So, you know, I think that that's something that we start to need to need to educate the public more and more that... Frankly,
1: I don't think they should. I, I mean, you're you're <laughs> right, but frankly, I hope they don't do anything about it, because this is the... I get the same joy about this as, as when I see friends on Facebook cite articles on The Onion with all seriousness. So I kind of hope that this sort of keeps going in the background as an inside joke, yeah, I mean,
2: I wonder what's what's more important—that scientists have a chance to actually show that they have a sense of humor, which is important, um, or that you know the public always can trust the source of British Medical Journal instead of having to think for themselves. I don't know. Question out there for our listeners.
1: My my favorite news story of the week uh, has to involve um, drinking and the effects on singing. So. Uh, Indre, did you have a good New Year's?
2: Did um, so I spent New Year's in bed with a terrible cold, the remnants of which you might still be able to hear. Um, so yeah, which is So was you didn't depressing. have
1: a hearty night of singing and drinking on New Year's Eve?
2: No, unlike all the other New Year's Eves that I've spent in my life.
1: But to many of our n- listeners who may not know, Indre is a trained classical singer. And I'm curious, what how do you perform when you've had a, a drink or two on in terms of your own Uh, vocalization, let's just
2: call it. Uh, Well, it depends. It depends, first of all, what the drink was. So if there's just a little bit of a drink, you know, like a little cognac before you go on stage, takes the edge off, usually doesn't affect my sound, maybe just gets rid of some of the nerves that are creeping in. Uh, But anything more than that is problematic for me. What I find goes first is my sense of pitch. Uh, so I have much more trouble hearing the correct pitches and knowing whether or not I'm in tune. And if I've ever listened to myself singing uh, Intoxicated, it is remarkable how out of tune my singing really becomes.
1: Well, thanks to researchers at the Oregon Health Sciences University, your internal individual results have been corroborated. They actually did a study, which was published last week in PLOS One. Uh, that took a look at zebra finches, and they fed them essentially a spiked fruit juice. Just like those old school parties with the punch bowl and somebody put something in it, uh, they fed these uh, finches who we are o- often studied because their vocal boxes are somewhat similar to humans. So it's been long studied, these songbirds, in terms of as an analog for for human speech. And they had them sing as they normally do, whether it be their mating songs or their social songs, and studied them at different levels of inebriations. They looked at their blood ethanol concentration uh, at different levels. And what they found is that, yes, these birds started slurring their songs at certain concentration. Uh, And the other thing they saw was, uh, and I love this phrasing, is the entropy of the uh of the song also changed meaning got a little sloppy and the amplitude which and this is the most surprising result the amplitude went down meaning they actually got a little bit quieter
2: huh cool. which is
1: the opposite of my sort of uh um Uh, relation to drinking and singing. (laughs) But I'm not a trained classical singer.
2: Well, it also makes me wonder, though, if they were more improvising more. So, you know, you'd argue that in the jazz world, or, you know, various other parts of musical culture, where improvisation is important, you know, that's where drugs and alcohol seem to, um, people think that they enhance that creative juice, as it were. So I wondered if uh, in some of these birds, you actually see novel patterns of songs, or do they just become, you know, less complex?
1: I think that's where they left open a lot of uh, interpretation. I was really surprised by sort of the opening line of the of this paper that said, uh, there's been no studies on humans on alcohol and their effects on sort of um, speech and, uh, and singing in this kind of way. So this is sort of a novel area of study, I, I sort of thought somebody would have just happened to have done that by now. Um, so we don't know. I think that's a, a really good question. Uh, but I think my favorite piece of, of, the, of the paper has to be this direct quote. We note that both the alcohol and control groups sang robustly on all days. So, <laughs> so no matter what, doesn't matter what the alcohol concentration was, there was some robust singing happening.
2: Excellent. Well, let's take a short break and we'll be back with Kishore's interview with Matt Walker. This episode is brought to you by Real Time with Bill Maher. Bill and his rotating panel of guest stars return for the 13th season of Real Time Tonight at 10pm, 9pm Central, only on HBO. Kickstart your new year and challenge yourself to learn something new with a free 10-day trial to lynda.com. Lynda.com is used by millions of people around the world and has over 3,000 courses on topics like web development, photography, visual design, and business, as well as software training like Excel, WordPress, and Photoshop. All of their courses are taught by experts, and new courses are added to the site every week. Whether you want to set new financial goals, find work-life balance, invest in a new hobby, ask your boss for a raise, find a new job, or improve upon your current job skills in 2015, Lynda.com has something for everyone. Sign up for your free 10-day trial today by visiting lynda.com slash minds. You'll get unlimited access to every course on lynda.com, and you also get access to watch these on tablets, iPhone, and Android mobile devices. There are courses like Getting Things Done, Business Writing Fundamentals, Small Business Secrets, Breaking Out of a Rut, and Foundations of Photography. Do something good for yourself in 2015 and sign up for this free 10-day trial to lynda.com by visiting lynda.com slash minds. That's lynda.com slash minds.
1: Matt Walker, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thank you very much for having me. So I have to admit, off the top, I was incredibly nervous about interviewing you, so I did not sleep well at all last night. I may have gotten two hours of sleep, which I think is the worst uh, concept before you talk to a sleep researcher. I'm going to
3: point out all of the cognitive mishaps that are happening throughout this interview for all of the listeners, and we'll.
1: this is a great online example of... uh, I will leave my insurance card at the table before we're done. Uh, So the... I have kind of some luddite questions to really get out of there it's like i had this really basic understanding of what sleep is i know we dream and we go through these different sleep cycles but um my wife and i were talking and she said isn't that just the opposite of awake your brain kind of shuts down a little bit and you you just are are sort of on low battery at (laughs) that point is that what being asleep is like in terms of brain activity
3: Yeah. So nothing could be further from the truth in terms of sleep. We used to think that sleep was just a dormant state that essentially the body rested and the brain switched off. And as a consequence, that's led by the way, to a terrible stigma that's now been associated with sleep, which is laziness. And it's a huge problem that we as a field have, we have a terrible image problem, which is that when people say, well, I get routinely eight, nine hours of sleep, people look at you and say, really? And, and the really sort of part comes from the fact that people are saying, gosh, well, aren't you a bit lazy? And the, the strange thing is that we never have that association across the lifespan. What I mean is nobody looks at an infant sleeping during the day and says, what a lazy baby. You know. Well, why? The reason is because we know that sleep at that time of life is absolutely fundamental. But somewhere between infancy and even childhood now, we abandon the notion that sufficient sleep is necessary. Um, So so I I make the point just because it's, it's interesting where it comes from is this idea that the brain simply lies dormant. And so surely we don't really need sleep. We can do away with it if it's just dormancy that we're canceling by waking up too early or going to bed too late. So but it's not remotely dormant. It's not remotely dormant at all. So let me perhaps just describe the two main types of sleep, and I can tell you why neither of them reflect dormancy. Um, in humans and most all mammals, we have non rapid eye movement sleep and rapid eye movement sleep, or non REM and REM. And non REM has been further subdivided into four separate stages which are unimaginatively called stages one through four, increasing in that we're a creative bunch as sleep researchers. So stages three and four of non-REM sleep are those really sort of deep restorative stages of sleep. Um, That's where the dormancy part comes in, because if you look at the brainwave activity during deep non-REM sleep, stages three and four, your brain waves are only going up and down maybe three or four times every second. Just to give you a context, when you're awake, your brain wave activity is going up and down maybe 40 or 50 times a second, 40 or 50 hertz in terms of frequency. So when you go into deep sleep, the brain activity seems to quote-unquote slow down and become lazy. It's not dissimilar to some stages of coma, in fact.
1: And that does that... is that what it looks like from the outward perspective? Is your body just not moving, no, just very still? That's right.
3: So your muscle tone has relaxed. You haven't lost all of your muscle tone, but your your body is in a state of relaxation. And as I said, your brain is just sort of, seems like it's quote unquote ticking over. But you should not be fooled because we now understand what that slow brainwave oscillation actually represents. What's happening is, is that all of a sudden, hundreds of thousands of cells within your cortex, which is that folded mass of tissue on top of your brain, they've all decided to start singing together in time. They all fire together, and then they all become silent. And they fire again, and they become silent. And it happens only during deep, slow-wave sleep. There's no other stage of the 24-hour period when your brain essentially just goes into this mantra slow chant where hundreds, as I said, of thousands of cells unite. It's sort of like being at a stadium. And before the game, everyone's chatting away and you just get no clear signal. Then all of a sudden, the game starts and the Berkeley crowd starts chanting, Stanford sucks. Hundreds of thousands of people in a stadium unite with the same voice. That's what's happening during deep slow wave sleep, mass synchrony.
1: And do we understand what the instigation for that is. What starts them singing in that unison?
3: Yeah, so the cortex actually seems to lose its connection with all of the deep, what we call subcortical structures. And the cortex, just when it's sort of essentially removed from that deeper brain connection, it goes into this default mode of a slow but highly synchronized chant. So it's, it's a remarkable state And one of the benefits we believe that, cause you can then ask, well, why would the brain do that? And what's it good for? It's essentially like long wave radio. When you get these sort of nice slow sort of brain waves, these slow oscillations, large parts of the brain are all now syncing up. So what you can achieve is communication of information across large distances within the brain. And it literally is like a carrier frequency, a slow chanting carrier frequency. So that maybe you can start to connect pieces of information in different parts of the brain, strengthen them, relate them together, build big tapestry frameworks of understanding.
1: So that means there is no such thing as a sleep center of the brain, if it's all connecting across a lot of areas.
3: Absolutely, yeah. So there are some centers in the brain that we know will release certain chemicals to help us get to sleep and there are other centers deep within the brainstem that will essentially fight each other to produce non-REM sleep and REM sleep. But to say that, you know, there's only one part of the brain that sleeps is entirely untrue. It's a remarkable ballet. It's like an engine. There's all sorts of different pieces that are active or inactive,
1: synchronous, non-synchronous. Wouldn't this also imply that if there's so much synchronicity across the brain and and structures that normally aren't communicating with each other in this way during waking hours, that sleep has some sort of outcomes on our regular cognition throughout the the day.
3: Yeah. So that's the remarkable thing now is to sort of ask, okay, so if we're spending, or we should be spending eight hours of our 24-hour period of sleep. Surely it's for some reasons. Surely it's for some benefit. Before you
1: go on, where does that eight-hour number come from?
3: It's a great question. So if you were to, in fact, roll back the clock 100 years, Americans were sleeping closer to nine and a quarter hours each night. Currently, based on our estimates of science, looking at what happens when you start to short sleep people, you bring them down to now seven hours of sleep or six hours of sleep or five hours of sleep, you can see at what point the elastic band of sleep deprivation stops stretching and snaps in terms of its biological consequence. And so you can essentially look at sort of like a dose response curve of sleep deprivation and say, how much do you really need to prevent all of these impairments that happen when you stop sleeping sufficiently? And it seems to be around about eight hours is the sweet spot so that you don't suffer any of these consequences. As soon as you get less than seven hours of sleep, it's very easy for us to measure impairments in your brain function and in your body functions.
1: And when you're talking about these biological consequences, what are some of the examples of these?
3: Yeah, so insufficient sleep or a lack of sleep has now been associated with increased risk for things like stroke, cardiovascular disease, It's been linked to diabetes and based on glucose regulation. Uh, It's been linked upstairs in the brain to things like anxiety, depression, recently Alzheimer's disease. Um, So also immune function is a huge issue right now. We know that as you start to short sleep, many of the immune factors within your immune system are depleted rapidly. And as a consequence, you become vulnerable to both infection and malignancy cancer. And in fact, the link between a lack of sleep and cancer is now so strong that the World Health Organization several years ago decided to classify shift work as a probable carcinogen.
1: Oh my goodness. That's how
3: powerful the the relationship is. So the bottom line is that there is not one tissue within the body. There is not one process within the brain that isn't beneficially affected by sleep when you get it and detrimentally impaired when you don't get enough.
1: Is that eight hours a moving target both throughout your life? Because obviously babies have to sleep much more. That's right. Yeah. Uh, But also you were mentioning, you know, just a hundred years ago, our average was at nine and a quarter and it seems to be shrinking. Are we actually also changing from 10,000 years ago, how much sleep humans were getting to to now?
3: It's certainly possible, but our need for sleep uh, has not sort of decreased by one and a quarter hours within just a 100 years. I mean, 100 years in terms of evolution is nothing. It's no time it's for nothing. change at all. So that short sleeping that we're now suffering is a consequence of our lifestyle. It's not a consequence of evolutionary habituation. Um, so it's likely that our sleep need is even more than eight hours, but certainly getting eight hours seems to be sufficient so that you don't suffer consequences. That's And those two things are different. You know, what would you like to be sleeping, but how much do you need to sleep so you don't suffer consequences? And eight hours is about that sweet spot.
1: But at the same time over our lifespan, it does change pretty significantly. It does
3: change dramatically. So if you look even in utero before you actually come out into this world, the amount of time that you spend asleep is huge. It's maybe up to 90% of that time in utero is spent in something that looks like a sleep state.
1: It's not so bad. 90% it sound is
3: bad at all, not it? I know. sometimes <laughs> I like to regress back to there myself. But um, And then when you're born, you can have rates of sort of 50, 60% uh, in the first 12 to 18 months. Of course, that's not in one solid bout, as many young parents will know. Infant sleep is what we call polyphasic. In fact, you're sort of awake for a few hours, then you sleep, and then you're awake for a few hours and you sleep. But the sum total is usually somewhere between 12 to 16 hours. And then gradually, as you progress through until adulthood, you get to this sweet spot of around about eight to nine hours. As you get older, there has been a misconception that older people need less sleep. And we now know that that's not true. It's simply that older adults don't seem to be able to generate sleep efficiency, efficiently, and that's why they're not getting it. So it's not an issue of sleep need decreasing. It's an issue of sleep generation decreasing.
1: Is that a consequence of biology, just natural aging processes, or a consequence of societal pressures like you alluded to earlier?
3: So for the aging component, it's a consequence of aging. So just a few, uh, just last year, we published some evidence that as you get old, your brain, just like your body, starts to deteriorate. But some parts of your brain deteriorate more quickly than others, unfortunately. Some of the places that deteriorate rapidly are the same areas that are important for generating sleep. And so it's now no surprise that as you get older and your brain starts to sort of what we call atrophy, so too does your sleep become disrupted. So for the for the aging component, that seems to be a pathological circumstance. For young uh, adults uh, or adults in midlife, the reasons that we're not sleeping are not pathology. There, it's actually societal, and there are a number of factors that have significantly reduced sleep amount in first world societies.
1: So when a friend comes up to me and he's like, eh, "I only really need six to get by," yeah, buy, yeah. Uh, is that just? It, it, him being a, a little bit myopic about his own sort of need or is that actually uh, is there so much inconsistency person to person on how much sleep they actually need to function at their optimal levels
3: yeah myopic would be um a very sort of politically correct and eloquent way of describing it um <laughs> idiotic maybe another one <laughs> uh, and i say that and I'm, I'm not trying to sort of belittle people but but One of the interesting things about sleep deprivation is that your subjective sense of what you think you're doing in terms of your sort of cognitive functioning and your body function. So your subjective sense of how well you're doing under conditions of sleep deprivation is a miserable predictor of objectively how you actually are doing. And it's one of the unfortunate consequences of sleep loss. You don't know the consequence of sleep deprivation when you're sleep deprived. So the analogy would be a drunk driver at a bar. You know, they've had maybe six or eight shots. They stand up, they pick up the car keys, and they say, I'm fine to drive home. And my response is, no, I know that you think you're fine to drive home. Trust me, you're not. And it's the same way with sleep deprivation. That's why so many people say, no, I'm one of those people who can survive on six hours of sleep.
1: So even habituation, like I do, I've been on six hours of sleep for 10 years. Yep. It, it doesn't change in terms it of the biology. It doesn't
3: change, no. And you have to realize two things. Firstly, human beings are the only species that deliberately deprives itself of sleep. No other species that we've encountered seems to do that deliberately for no purpose. There are a few exceptions. For example, migrating birds during that migratory phase, they will undergo a sleep restriction. Turns out that they actually have little micro-sleeps as they're migrating to try and get back some of that sleep. But Fundamentally, human beings are the only uh, group of of, of living uh, organisms that take away sleep from their lives without any benefit. Um, so, so my point is that as a consequence, evolution has never faced the challenge of coming up with safety net physiological schemes that can get you through sleep deprivation. So it's no wonder that there isn't anything that can sort of help you overcome it caffeine can help you a little bit with basic things like response times caffeine doesn't mask the remarkable impairments in systems of body and brain
1: well this is an excellent experiment because i'm just chugging down a coffee as we're talking i have to this. say yeah i
3: didn't know it's, it's like sort of speaking to you know a sort of an alcohol researcher and you're there with a budweiser as we're doing the interview it's fascinating but anyway continue
1: i, I so i the natural question i have is can you make that up If I am regularly sleeping six hours, could I, during the weekdays, could I sleep 12? Could I make up a sleep debt? That's this old legend that came back from my college days. It's like, yeah, during the week, I'll pull an all-nighter or two, sleep four hours on these nights, but Saturday morning, don't wake me up till after lunch.
3: Yeah, so I see that a lot in my students too. And unfortunately, sleep doesn't work like that. Sleep is not like the bank. You can't accumulate a debt during the week and then hope to pay it off later at the weekend. So in my students, it's something that I would describe as um, sleep bulimia. So, so during the week, you know, that they don't want to go to bed any earlier, but they have to wake up for classes. So they're short sleeping during the week and then they just binge at the weekend. They'll take 12 hours, 13 hours. So it's this real binge purge syndrome. And we see that even outside of the student boundaries. And many people in modern life take that approach thinking that they can pay back this debt. And it's not true for a number of reasons. Firstly, yes, you will sleep longer the night after a night of sleep deprivation. However, your brain never makes back up all of the sleep that it lost on that night of sleep deprivation. Even if you give the brain sleep ad lib, you give it as much opportunity to sleep as it wants. It never makes back up what it's lost in full. We also know there's consequences to that. So one of the functions of sleep is that after you've learned new information, sleep seems to grab a hold of those new files that you've created in your brain and hit the save button like a new Word document. What we've found is that if you teach people some information, have them learn on the first day, then you sleep-deprive them the night after learning. Then you don't test them the next day. Instead, you give them all of the recovery sleep that they want on a second night and even a third night. And then you test them out on day four. They show no evidence of having been able to save and consolidate that memory.
1: So the notion of an all-nighter, it, it shouldn't actually benefit you in the long run That's in terms right. of your learning.
3: That's right. So in other words, sleep within the first 24 hours after learning – is fundamentally necessary. So if you don't snooze, you lose in that case.
1: So what the heck is happening when you're sleeping that actually affects your cognition? So
3: it's a fantastic question. And what we found is that firstly, well, sleep seems to do at least three things for learning and memory. First, sleep the night before actually seems to refresh and restore the learning circuits within your brain. So sleep is almost like a sponge in the sense, or the hands on the sponge, I should say, and it sort of almost rings out the memory circuits of the brain so that when you wake up the next day, your brain is now dry and it's ready to soak up new information the next day. And if you don't sleep the night before, it's as though your sponge is waterlogged and you can't soak up any new files. The second way that sleep is important is just as I've described, sleep after learning cements those new files into the neural architecture of the brain so that you don't forget.
1: And is it a particular stage of the sleep cycle that's actually doing a lot of this uh, architecting that you're describing?
3: Yeah, it is. And what we've been finding is that different types of sleep, different stages of sleep at different times of night support different functions of learning and memory. So what we found is that a lighter form of non-REM sleep, something called stage two non-REM sleep, is very good at refreshing and restoring your learning ability for the next day. However... Deep sleep, stages three and four of non-REM sleep, they're very good at then grabbing those new memories that you form during the day and essentially cementing them into your brain so that you don't lose them. But then the third function that sleep seems to support is that it's a more intelligent integration of information. Sleep doesn't just take new memories and save them. It does that, but it does more than that. Sleep actually then takes all of the new things that you've been learning and starts testing the interrelations between those. It builds webs of association. And that's important because it's the difference between knowledge, which is learning individual facts, and wisdom, which is extracting overarching understanding. That's what you want from a good student, not just someone who can wrote, learn the material, someone who deeply understands it. And it's REM sleep that seems to provide that sort of creative, almost like group therapy for memories. You start to collide things together. And when you do that, you can come up with creative novel solutions to problems that you've been facing.
1: And so this is incredibly distinct to sleep, because you can't just take breaks and have this kind of work happening in your brain, you need to actually enter these particular stages that you can't get just by taking a little bit of time off and going on a walk and, and whatnot to actually uh, aggregate some of this information together.
3: That's right. Yeah. Many of these processes that we're describing are truly sleep dependent. They're not just sort of sleep opportunistic. It's not just though sleep is just a little better than sort of sort of staying awake on those issues. It truly is a dependent process.
1: So this is getting to one of my fundamental questions, because this seems like a crazy evolutionary process. Why would, um, in, in a cycle that's largely been driven by um, uh, avoiding predators, would you have this particular time that you need to refresh? And, and so it, it invites a couple basic questions. Is this pretty consistent across all animals that we see this type of sleep or is sleep pretty wildly different across animals?
3: So yeah, so the first point is that sleep in every species that we've studied to date is present. So what that means is that sleep has fought its way through heroically every step along the evolutionary pathway.
1: It does it seem crazy to you on some level that we absolutely.
3: Sleep? I mean, when you this think is about absurd sleep, thing. it, it's it, so there's a great quote. There's a founding father of my field, sleep research field, a guy called Alan Rekshafen, who once said that if sleep doesn't serve a fundamental benefit, it's the biggest mistake evolution ever made. And his point was a good one. And as you described, when you're sleeping, firstly, you're not finding or interacting with a mate. You're not gathering resources. You're not gathering food. You're not socially interacting in socially interactive species. You're not protecting your home territory. And worst of all, you're vulnerable to predation. On any one of those grounds, but especially on all of them combined, sleep should have been eradicated by evolution almost instantaneously but yet it has persisted in every species. What that tells us is that whatever the cost there is to sleep, it must be far
1: outweighed by all of the incredible benefits that sleep serves. And do these benefits extend beyond uh, the brain uh, into cellular mechanisms as well? And is there there's research in those areas going on,
3: Yeah, so if you look outside of the brain, you could think, well, sleep, and we know this for a fact, sleep is generated by the brain, so perhaps sleep is therefore of the brain and for the brain. But it's not simply benefiting the brain. Sleep is a time of immense benefit for your body. So, for example, sleep can regulate your glucose, and it can sort of maintain your energy balance. And if I take you and I short-sleep you and give you just five hours of sleep a night for five nights and I measure your glucose regulation within your body, you are so profoundly impaired after just five nights of five hours of sleep that a doctor would classify you as being pre-diabetic at that stage. And that's why there's a link between a lack of sleep and type two diabetes, I should note. If you look at the immune system, if I give you just four hours of sleep for one night, your immune system function is impaired by about 70%, seven zero. So there's a catastrophic implosion of your immune system health. That's immune compromise to a remarkable degree. And I could go on, I could list other model systems as well. I could speak um, about uh, sort of cardiovascular regulation. Every one of the basic, what we call homeostatic systems within your body take a huge hit even just after one night of short
1: sleep. And are you talking about the sleep in one consistent block? Or because most animals, like thinking about, you know, cats that I've had, are sleeping for, you know, five minutes, ten minutes, and always have kind of an eye open, keeping (laughs) an eye on what's going on. So is this sort of monophasic, uh, as you described earlier, uh, a particular human trait that, is important in some way? Or could we be looking at this as we just need a total of that kind of amount of sleep?
3: Yes, it's actually a, a fundamental question and one that still remains debated, which is how should we as human species be sleeping? Many of us think, well, we should sleep at night. And that's true. But there's also the argument that we should be sleeping what's called biphasically rather than monophasically. We should have two bouts of sleep. But the two bouts of sleep happen in this way. If you look at cultures that have not been touched by electricity, they tend to have about a six and a half hour period of sleep at night. And then they have about an hour and a half in the afternoon, that sort of siesta like right about three o'clock? Yeah. Right, exactly. And what's interesting is that if you... If you go to sort of a boardroom around that time after lunch, you know, and you look at people and observe them around the table, you start to get these strange head nods, these dipping head nods. Now, it's not that people are listening to good music. What's happening is that people are falling prey to a pre-programmed, genetically determined dip in your physiological alertness. We all experience it and we can measure it in everyone. And what that tells us is that perhaps we have been genetically programmed to have two phases of sleep, not one. We should be sleeping in this biphasic pattern. So people like Edison, for example, have a lot to answer for in that sense. So the jury is still out. Certainly maintaining at least a sum total of eight hours within twenty-four of sleep absolutely seems to be essential.
1: I'm sort of amazed that we've come to all of these conclusions in what seems like a short period of time that sleep research in and of itself as a field is young. Isn't that right?
3: Yeah. Well, it's interesting. We only discovered that we had two types of sleep, non-REM and REM sleep, back in uh, 1954. So it's the same time that we discovered DNA, in fact, but what's interesting is that you could argue we in the sleep field, our progress has been, I would argue, remarkable, but perhaps not the remarkable acceleratory trajectory that you've seen with genetics and DNA when that's sort of following that discovery. But certainly my field is, you know, may, only a half century old, which is nothing in, in science, really.
1: And which brings me to one of the things that I've been most curious about is how do you actually conduct some of this research? I I kind of have this this vision of like all these sleep deprived students wandering around campus. <laughs> and you just sort of keeping an eye on them. So I'm I'm really curious how you uh how some of these studies look and feel and what's it like to actually be in one. Have you actually ever been in a sleep study? I
3: have, yeah. So yeah, we actually do do it. We we have huge nets and we go out around the campus and we kind of snag, <laughs> throw them over these you students. Know. Um, around so, three o'clock, you go out. Yeah, around three through. o'clock. Well, actually, they're they're routinely sleep deprived around the clock, so we've got no shortage like butterfly nets and all that good stuff. So um, so firstly, I I have been uh, in sleep studies myself. Absolutely, I've been sleep deprived myself, but I have to say with a caveat. Sleep research is not without a sense of irony because to study this process, you have to deprive yourself of the very same thing. You know, we have to stay up at night looking at these brainwave traces as we're recording these individuals. Um, so so the way that we tend to do these studies is that we have a sleep lab here in this building. Um, it's in the basement and we'll either bring participants in and apply electrodes over their head and their face and we'll measure these different stages of sleep or we'll bring them in and we actually won't let them sleep. We will monitor them under the full that supervision rule. Cool. It's total sleep deprivation. They get reimbursed and it's by consent. It's all ethically approved. Uh, and yeah, it's um, they have no caffeine, no naps. It's miserable for us uh, and them, it's miserable for everyone. Uh, so we do these studies where we can essentially ask, what happens when you take sleep away? What happens when you give sleep back? What is it about sleep when you're getting that sleep that's promoting these benefits? Is it REM? Is it non-REM? Is it all of them? Is it none of them? So we can sort of manipulate the system of sleep, either dialing it down with deprivation or giving it back with a full night or even naps, and then start to assess what's going on in the brain with things like MRI scanning technology and and see if we can start to understand and dissect the benefits and the detriments of sleep and sleep deprivation.
1: This might seem a ridiculous question, but is the bulk of our understanding of this field based off of the sleep patterns of 18 and 21 year olds on college campuses? Um, Like much of psychology to a degree, but one of the, but perhaps even
3: less so than other fields though, I would argue because sleep changes so dramatically across the lifespan that we've, we have not been given the excuse to only study young, healthy college students. There are such profound changes um, going back into, as we've spoken about infancy, even childhood, adolescence is a time of profound sleep change into early adulthood. And then as we get older, those those sleep patterns change. They change very early. In fact, even by the time you're in your mid thirties, we can start to see age related deterioration in your sleep. So we've not actually had the opportunity to remain myopically focused on just one age and, for, and I think for benefits, good reasons.
1: In that same vein, uh, we were talking about studying people with normal sleep patterns or normal individuals. There's this whole field of sleep disorders, which we've heard all of these stories about people sleepwalking, sleep eating, sleep talking, which I do. I My wife tells me all these things I say in my sleep. Uh, and I'm wondering what uh, some of these sleep disorders are really telling us about the generic notion of sleep for, for, for humans because there's a wild array of what we're, we're seeing in terms of sleep disorders.
3: Yeah. So just in terms of the sort of general population, um, there's about 70 million people in the U.S. right now who are suffering from some kind of a sleep disorder. That's a remarkable amount. That's like seven, a quarter of zero, the population. Exactly. And about 30 million people don't get sufficient sleep. About 30 million Americans are chronically sleep-deprived. And in fact, in the last month, about 9 million people swallowed some kind of sleep aid to try and help their sleep.
1: So So 70 million is a non-trivial number for sure. So what is like a common sleep disorder that I, because I think sleep disorder, I'm thinking on the extreme end of the spectrum. Yeah. Like somebody sleepwalking down the street. I I don't think you're talking about that. No. no So probably
3: the two most common sleep disorders are insomnia and what we call sleep apnea. And apnea literally means if you translate it from the Latin, it simply means an absence of breath. So sleep apnea is commonly where people have a sort of a collapsing of the airway, and then they start to get a sort of what we call an occlusion, a blockage of that airway because the airway collapses, and they start to have a hard time breathing. And so snoring can often be indicative of a sleep apnea problem. And then people will go through a period of time when they are not inhaling sufficient amounts of oxygen. So their brain starts to become starved of oxygen. It becomes sort of um, hypoxic. And then they will, all of a sudden the system will wake them up because the system is starting to fear that you're going to suffocate. So you wake up and you often don't tend to remember the awakening. So you go back to sleep. And it's a huge problem because the, the quality of sleep that you're getting is remarkably poor You're not getting into deep sleep. You're having remarkably fragmented sleep across the night.
1: So this isn't just a story of quantity. This is about accessing all of those stages. Exactly.
3: So this is both quantity and quality in sleep apnea. So sleep apnea, um, sleep disordered breathing, we now have some pretty good treatments. So if people think they're suffering from sleep apnea out there, they should go and see a sleep doctor. So that's one of probably the two, Main sleep disorders. The second one is insomnia. And there are two flavors of insomnia, and they're not mutually exclusive. The first is sleep onset insomnia. So you can't fall asleep effectively. The second is sleep maintenance insomnia. You can fall asleep just fine, but you can't stay asleep. And those two sleep disorders are probably the most prominent of all. But there are many others. There are things like sleep walking, sleep talking. Um, sleepwalking and sleep talking, by the way, don't necessarily indicate that you have a sleep disorder. If they're problematic to your daily functioning, you Is that can the line? Like
1: if it's problematic, that's when you cross the line? Yeah, into the disorder. Uh,
3: absolutely, yeah. Sleepwalking and sleep talking, many people think, oh, that has to be dream sleep. Um, it turns out it's not true. So REM sleep, as we spoke about, and I don't think we went into it, but rapid eye movement sleep is the other dominant stage of sleep, and it is the stage from which you principally dream. But sleepwalking and sleep talking actually happen from deep non-REM sleep. So you're in the deepest stages of non-REM, stages three or four. And then all of a sudden, for some reason, the brain seems to try and rocket out of deep sleep all the way up to wakefulness. It tries to go from the basement to the so penthouse. Those,
1: those people aren't dreaming when they're doing they're this.
3: They're not dreaming. So, But what happens is they get stuck somewhere on the 13th floor, essentially. And so they're in what we call a state of mixed consciousness. If you look at the brainwave activity, it's clear that they are in deep sleep. But if you look at them physically, they're walking around and they tend to just enact routine behaviors. They all mutter a few words. Maybe they get up, they go over to the closet, open the door, close the door... Pick up a glass, put it to their lips, put it down. It can be more extreme than that, but tends not to be. And that is so. That's coming from deep non-REM sleep. And if you wake someone out of a sleepwalking episode and say, "Tell me what was going through your mind just just in the few minutes before," they'll say, "Nothing. I, nothing was happening really in my mind." And the reason is because you're not dreaming;
1: you're in deep non-REM sleep. It almost sounds like psychosis in some way. Like you have no memory of this. Incredibly crazy episode where you're functioning in, in the most tangible way. Is that in in a sense is sleep a, a sort of a psychotic episode? Well, psychotic perhaps
3: not. Psychotic certainly can be applied to dream sleep to REM sleep, and I'll I'll, I'll come onto that in a second. But your point is interesting, which is you know you're doing all of these things, but you're not aware of them, and what's sad and interesting is that some people in sleepwalking episodes have actually murdered other people. So there's a famous case now about uh, a guy in Canada, a guy called Ken Parks, who, according to uh, the legal case, he woke up, he fell asleep on his couch. He woke up in the middle of the morning, about 2 a.m. in the morning. Um, He drove about 15 miles and he went through approximately three or four sets of traffic lights, probably more. He drove out to his in-law's house, his mother and father-in-law. He went into their house. He um, stabbed his mother-in-law to death and strangled his father-in-law unconscious. His father-in-law survived. And then he got back into his car. And only when he was driving back home, did he quote unquote, wake up. He looked at his hands, which had been dramatically severed from the knife. He'd sliced his own hands. He went straight to a police station with blood all over him and said, something's happened. I think I may have killed some people. And he ended up being acquitted of murder based on the fact that he was suffering from a sleepwalking episode. And because he was not consciously aware, he he, he was not culpable for his actions. And so he was...
1: Do we have any idea of why some of the uh, some people are getting stuck in this area? They're not transitioning properly. Is it is it simply a, a, a chemical situation where some signaling is not happening in the right way, or is this uh, brought on by external influencers?
3: So we actually don't fully understand what triggers these sort of episodes. Certainly, it seems to be almost an alerting signal that happens in the brain to sort of wake you up. And it's very rare that you are woken up out of deep sleep. If you naturally wake up, you tend to rise back up into the lighter stages of non-REM sleep, or you tend to wake up from REM sleep. So it's it's a very unusual circumstance for the brain to try and go from zero to 60, from deep sleep to wakefulness within one fell swoop. Um, so we actually don't fully understand. What's interesting is that sleepwalking and sleep talking is far more common in children. And as you start to move into adulthood, you tend to grow out of it, or at least it decreases in frequency. So there's something strange that's going on developmentally, but we don't fully understand yet.
1: And are there genetic uh, uh, conditions here? They're like hereditary conditions when it comes to sleep. Do we see some of uh, sleep behaviors and sleep disorders being passed down through uh, uh, through our DNA?
3: Yeah, there are certainly hereditary uh, components to several sleep disorders. Um, the insomnia seems to have some degree of hereditability to it, um, but it's by no means capable of explaining all that is the incidence of insomnia. Same with sleepwalking, it tends to happen, run in families to a degree, but there are some children who will suffer sleepwalking, sleep talking, and their parents are completely bemused because they were never sleepwalkers or sleep talkers themselves, to at least the best of their knowledge. So, just like many other disorders, there is seems to be a genetic component, but there is something beyond genetics
1: and that sort of hints at some of these larger questions which which is it seems like there's so much we don't know about sleep at this point so i'm curious what is keeping you up at night what is the most interesting aspects of sleep that we haven't even remotely touched upon yet
3: so i think it's interesting the way that we phrase the sort of question you know what what is sleep doing or what's the function of sleep and i think that was a big mistake of the field in the first few years, which is that we thought there was one singular reason that we slept. So we went in search of the one holy grail sort of 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 sleep function. And I think that was a misnomer because when you consider it, we're awake for two thirds of our life and we're not awake just to do one thing. We achieve many different essential functions when we're awake. Why that same math can't also be applied to the one third of our time that we spend asleep uh, has always been a, a strange puzzle to me. So, what we're now finding is that we sleep for for many different reasons—a whole constellation of different nighttime benefits. Um, so, I think it's hard to sort of say, okay, what what would I think is the, the sort of that one single single function? So, we've got lots of clues, but it's probably worth pointing out that we, as a field, still cannot give you a consensus answer agreed upon as to why we sleep. So. I mean, imagine, you know, imagine the scenario, um, the birth of your first child, you know, you're there in the hospital, the doctor walks into the room and says, congratulations, it's a healthy boy or a girl. We've done all of the preliminary tests and everything looks good. And they sort of smile in that reassuring way that doctors can smile. They turn around just before they get to the door, they look back at you and they say, there is just one thing from this moment forth, and for the rest of your child's entire life, they will routinely and repeatedly lapse into a state of non-consciousness. In fact, it will look not dissimilar to death, but don't worry, it's reversible. And I should note that at times, while their body lies still and peaceful, in their brain they will be having remarkable hallucinogenic delusional experiences, and in fact, this will consume an entire third of your child's life. And I've got no idea why. Good luck. You know, I mean, if someone told you that, you'd say, that's preposterous. That can't be true. How can we not know what someone is doing for a third of their life? But for the most part, in, in the strict sense, that's the situation. I can't
1: tell you definitively why we sleep, but we've got lots of clues. Is that big question what drew you personally into this field?
3: Yeah, I think sleep continues to be perhaps one of the last great remaining biological mysteries. Many of those classic mysteries of science have fallen prey to the revolution of genetics, molecular biology, but sleep has been incredibly resistant to that. I mean, it truly is that sort of riddle shrouded in a mystery wrapped in a remarkably large question mark i mean we so i one of the reasons that i got into the field i i looked back and i read a lot about the classic masters in my field really smart creative brilliant scientists and they'd spent an entire career trying to figure out why we slept and none of them had succeeded <laughs> i thought this is perfect this this will at least last me at least a sort of a career through until retirement Fantastic. I mean, there are lots of other reasons that I'm very uh, drawn to the question of sleep. I mean, it's such a bizarre state. It's a state where we lose consciousness. It's the most remarkable fracture point in our conscious experience.
1: And it happens daily. With all these ideas swimming around my head of uh, sleepwalkers, sleep talkers, the notion of learning. I'm really curious what I'm going to s- dream about tonight after this <laughs> conversation. You need to definitely just send me the dream report
3: and I'll, I'll do some decoding for you.
1: <laughs> Thank you so much for the time.
3: You're very welcome.
2: Excellent job, Kishore. I really enjoyed that interview. And I feel like you've kind of laid the groundwork because I'll be interviewing Matt Walker at City Arts and Lectures on April 22nd. So if any of our listeners are in the Bay Area, you can come check that out. And you've given me a lot of really great questions to ask him. Um, one thing I found really fascinating was this whole notion that, of course, as we mentioned at the top of the show, the number of hours that we should be sleeping or have been sleeping, you know, there really isn't a prescribed number. So I used to, I always had the eight hours in my head as the ideal number. That's how we evolved. That's the ideal sleep number. And, and it, you know, hearing Matt Walker talk about that that's an arbitrary number, that it didn't even apply 100 years ago, is really shocking.
1: I was uh, impressed with... Uh... The fact that he still, even though it's arbitrary, and it's probably shifting for uh, different individuals under different circumstances, that he was really clear that there is a significant boundary when you start to dip to even seven.
2: Right. So it's not that, yeah, it's not that eight hours is necessarily, you know, it's kind of like the minimum before you see damage. And I always thought of it to be like, well, no, you know, that's the sort of, that's the ideal. But if you get six or seven, it can't be that bad.
1: Yeah, he definitely spoke about it in a very significantly different way. I've never thought about eight hours as the minimum before you start to see biological consequences. I don't know. There's something about that phrase "biological consequences" that made me made me perk up a little bit uh, when he, when he was talking. And I was also struck by the fact that um, we don't know the optimal way to sleep. Like this notion of whether we do eight hours consecutively. Or if it should be broken up because of this sort of tendency for our own um, rhythm to drop in the late afternoon. That also struck me as odd that we don't know the answer to that yet. Mm -hmm. And in talking to him, even after the interview, we talked about a number of animals that seem to have very wildly different sleep patterns that were these sort of uh, biphasic patterns where they would sleep, you know, an hour here, an hour there, four hours here, In really strange conditions, Uh, I guess I'm walking away with this feeling that I was surprised uh, leaving the interview with, that sleep is really absurd. It is this absurd condition that every animal on this planet goes through that we have very few explanations for in terms of why and even what it is.
2: Yeah, no, I mean, to me, obviously, being sleep deprived, having a baby changed my own relationship with sleep. But watching my child learn to sleep, I mean, the fact that we have to kind of train them into falling asleep and giving them the right associations and conditions and everything. i mean, you'd think that that would just be sort of a natural process for them. Um, And yet, you know, it's really interesting to me to watch him develop and change and how the nap and sleep patterns are really a big part of that. So, um, so Thanks for enlightening us.
1: It was great. I'm really interested in exploring sleep efficiency more. The the sort of phrase you threw out in the end about how as we age, we become less efficient sleepers. So I I right after the interview, I downloaded a sleep app to, to track how well I sleep uh, to try to increase that sleep efficiency. And I got to say, um, that interview scared me. So I've been sleeping eight hours a night ever since then. It didn't hurt that I've been on vacation a little bit since then. Um but honestly I feel a lot better.
2: Yeah, good for you. I'll, I hope to get there someday soon. <laughs> so that's it for another episode. Kishore Thanks for doing the interview and for being on Inquiring Minds.
1: It was a pleasure to be here.
2: And I want to thank our listeners also for joining us for this installment. You can visit our website at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds. You can find us on Twitter at inquiringshow, Show, on Facebook at slash inquiringmindspodcast. And you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, your own sleep trackers, or anything else you'd like to inquiringminds at climatedesk.org. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac in cooperation with The Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration in partnership with The Atlantic, the Center for Investigative Reporting, The Guardian, Grist, Mother Jones, Slate, Wired, and The Huffington Post. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Sheehan, and I'm your host, Indre Viscontis.